I consider myself lucky tonight to welcome you to Words Poetry Love event with uh, guest poets Sue Kessenbaum and tribute to uh, Paul Nasser and Megan Sterling and Weston and Chen Chen. This year, the poetry world and more importantly our community lost a neighbor with the passing of Paul Nasser. Paul had a long and distinguished career as an attorney and poet. He authored four books of poetry and won multiple prizes for his work. He published widely in literary magazines such as the London Review of Books, the Boyd Poetry Journal, and Agni, a literary magazine housed at Boston University, and known among readers around the world. The Lillard Review has even named a book prize after him, the Paul Nasser Poetry Prize. One of our own poets reading tonight has received this prize. I wouldn't Paul had a beautiful voice, uh, his wife Rebecca said, and an extraordinary memory for poems and music. He loved reading, spent many happy hours at Blue Hill Books. Paul gave numerous poetry readings at Blue Hill Public Library, East Blue Hill Library, Four Seasons Farm, Yellow Birch Farm, the Gilhoy Gallery, I feel and as well as on Zoom during the pandemic, and also in his family, wherever one of them got together to sing and enjoy poetry. He and Rebecca honeymooned on Deer Isle and celebrated their 48th wedding anniversary this past year with their son Alexander in Harmside. And finally she added, he's much missed. Paul's work often focused on transformation and the brevity of life, in two lines that he wrote about transformations, you know, spoke to me now that he has passed. He wrote, Before this world, we passed through clouds of others. I'm sure that we all join his family, hoping that Paul is passing peacefully through other clouds right now. So to put voice to the poems of Paul Manser, please welcome another much loved and generous neighbor, former poet laureate, named Stu Kessenbaum. How's that for a volume, though? I'm so soft-spoken. Usually nobody hears anything I say. Well, I've maintained my reputation in all these years. Um, I had a chance to talk to Rebecca uh, a couple of days ago as I was preparing for this reading. And uh, she told me the story of how she and Paul met. They'd gone to college at the same time at the same schools, but hadn't met each other. And then uh, in 1974, she went in to buy a book at the Yale Co-op bookstore. bookstore. And Paul was working at the store. And four months later, they were married. So it must have been a great book. <laughs> and uh, the owner of the bookstore, the manager of the bookstore, gave them as a present two weeks at a cottage on Deer Island in the sunset. And that's, that's how they got to me. And uh, they, as Marie said, they came every year except for the year their son Alexander was born, every year for 48 years, eventually settling in Harborside. And uh, the title of one, of one of Paul's books is Break On Through. Many literate uh, 
rock and roll people will understand that that title comes from the doors break on through to the other side. Listen to that on the way over here from Deer Isle. So it's kind of still in my head. But, and for Paul, that breaking on through was really uh, important to him in terms of thinking about poetry. And here's what he wrote about it in the introduction to his book, Break on Through, when he first, probably 16 or 17, he was listening, I imagine, in his room, you can see the electro label and the doors going around. If you remember, that was a turntable. <laughs> he said uh, he was blown away by the lyrics of the doors break on through to the other side. And you might remember that this was during a time of the Vietnam War, civil rights movement, and just generational change. It was a great deal of turmoil, much like, real much like today. Yes. And he writes that. For him, the song was about breaking through the limits of ordinary language, which seemed wholly inadequate to capture that revolutionary moment. And that he saw poetry as a way to reclaim a bit of Eden. The journey to break on through the limits of ordinary language was his lifelong journey in poetry. And this is what, uh, what he says about that. He says, I lost, I lost myself and found myself again and again in that Doris song in Russia and in Brazil, in the cold waters of Oregon, Massachusetts and Maine, in love and struggle, in grief and in arguing and law, at the synagogue, the Seder, in prayers alone, in Genesis, but most of all in moments of reading and writing poetry. And at the end of a long poem uh, called Ball Lightning, the concluding lines are, something bursts, the God is here. And I think I'm gonna read I think seven of, of Paul's poems, and you'll hear, I think, always that, that journey where he's gotten to the other side of, uh, of our world. This first book, the first poem is called For an Astronomer's Daughter. Before this world, we pass through clouds of others, worlds of ivy islands and a coffee cup, a world's hands soft as if still holding a dropped tone. Starry flourishes that can't be read when we look toward them. They don't see us when we look away. Slopes of pumice underfoot and pumice in air scraping lips down to first and last wishes. Worlds in which I looked for you and worlds in which I drank from you. Middens of matter, a dense nothingness in them and spectra that luster along mothers of pearl. Shore shimmer, Shining so many ways. Broken liquid worlds that say, bring water in your hands. Bays torn white by a turbulence of dolphins. Bays torn blue by a two-hooked moon. Dust of horizon cross, billow mist passed under. But I call to you in this world, I must recall from some other. Light gives a little shudder before I say your name. This uh, next poem is called Code Song. And you'll hear in Paul's work, we lived in Cambridge in the, most of the year, that, that Maine and imagery from Maine are, are such a powerful part of his writing. Code Song. Into the distance, past the harbor, follow the stair or not. Dissect despair. A raven there will parse a robin's gut, divining half the ways of blood until your forehead's hot, until the air is pearly hair or grubs in a clay pot. 
If you ever see orange sweet stone, if ever weighs so flat, then shrink yourself and roll yourself two lips upon a tip. Be likened on the slick bark birch, must on the grounded bat. If everything's alive with death, then everything will eat. A chickadee will seize on you in a scarce winter nut and plop the husk where net-winged midges haze a shifting gate. You'll open out your deepest breath in long rows of a flute, and there you'll shake without your hands, you'll fly without a root. An hour to cross a windless pier to scoop a wave and wait, blind in a cone of April stars, gray salt and herring nut. Behind that weed, the moon is red. You'll peek and swallow it. More tails will wriggle. Every bird forgets what it has caught. You know, winter's on the way. <laughs> Which I, I love. I think it's great winter's on the way. I mean, imagine if winter weren't on the way. This, this home is called this cold world we fled to. And then it never got warm. We stay away from everyone and hurry into woods, into fresh water with snapping turtles. Plume-tailed birds come in for cooling. Water seizes us with words we need to send, fast over tongues through teeth chattering. As to the soul, well, where are you, little hopper? Heart among the tongue, I worry for you, thinning through a forest of hooks. I look up at the moon and am dizzy, thinking of craters showing down toward my eyes a wild blank snow. Or the icebergs an archangel hurls into my half-sleep, two-hand overhead heave and heavy breathing until the slash takes my breath and everything I wish for, even fanfares of green bees bouncing in green blooms. But oh, we say, sun ups, ruddies cross, and we are creatures made in the likeness of the cold. Cold created them, him and her. Cold shivered them, woman and man, as if surprise had formed us in the image of surprise. Our voice gets lost in the winter birds. At every turn, we see shelter in each other. I feel the lean of birches through your body's lean on mine. This next poem is called, It Would Be Better. And it's dedicated to Rebecca. Sound of the pots, weather in the kitchen. Outside the air was laced with mist, and brothers hugged sisters on the black concrete. In winter, everything would be better. It would be all better in the spring. An ounce of brandy and a cake would decorate the table. A bit of meat would seem like summer. Teacups would not stain when they went to drink. There would be sex and open tables, tools of good steel, a day's pay, and rain washing the linens. Children would not hide from passers-by. The grocer would hand out celery to the thirsty. Cats would not sweat off the washerwoman's legs while the wise sent incantations to blue the heavy sky. Even politicians learning lines of old songs would serenade them of all that was to be. They might have a car and husbands and wives 
They might learn to play cello. They might weep. So Mason stirred and stirred their mortar. In the rich man's courtyard, the gardener prayed for the sun. Nothing could contain their happiness. Here was a beetle. Beetles rolled dung. Dung grew wheat. Wheat was history. Wave upon wave of famine and flood to drive out the worst. Knit the better. Minute to minute into forever. As clarinets might weave night thoughts of lovers whose ears would always hold the tune. When light came down like a tent over the workshops, people bent over wheels, looked up from their jobs, saw each other's faces, called out what needs fixing by hammer or by thread, by hand or by flame. In open windowed rooms, they treated forgivenesses, contexts, distinctions, till night healed today. Some had been bumpkins and some had been lucky. And if buildings got too tall for people to handle, gulls that wheeled like machines of salvation would teach them directions from the clock's own map. Signs would throw off the freeway. The roads would not be crowded. There would be messages and long times, doorways, joy, and mourning. It would be sweet and good because so much had gone before. This next poem is in the other book. You know, that's a moment of panic. If you ever won't do a reading and you think you turn into the right page and it's the wrong book. But now we're all set. And this is called Obad, and an Obad is a it's a morning poem, O Arden, like in the morning, and for a lover departing a lover. Obad. We wanted nothing but hearts. To be hearts purely, mounted on the knobs of perfect onyx backbones, laying in onyx cubes in the museum of hearts. Or drifting through the archipelago of hearts, oyster nights, oil lit cities, shells of sea. We scribbled letters to our hearts inside cabinet drawers, on the insides of the nautilus, on the bubble chains left by a keel. We talked of fish bones crushed and added to a life like exotic salts and the night blue bouts of spring wind that skimmed down and swat at sure waters. As if everything that mattered were remembered from a darkness outdarkened by fire. Wake with me. Let your voice bubble up like nymphs in a bay where women chew on snails to sing their lips before they sing and wailing dogs no longer make their reputations by snapping off the wings of wasps. Yes, I'm brutal as a boat, I dip, I loop, in a wood hull propelled by contrapuntal vowels along boat rivers under black bridges. Your bird frantic on a neatly branch out above the waves as they come in beating at riverbanks where the mornings, moorings feel the sea. Different heart wrecks, palpitations. Here they are, a wild red mash of crusts and ash won't everything be thrown fire first into the day? For now, a gray machine is driving waves and sky. Dock workers pull the morning moon up by her arms to watch her slither on carts to dive to sea and swim away. I could do a little quiz and ask who knows who Namazani is, but you would all cry out, why, that's the Greek god of memory. 
that, that's how teachers teach their class to the class up there. Smart, you know that? There are whole studies about that, how they teach, their teacher will think they're smart kids and they teach their kids and give them answers. You knew that already because you read that study, right? <laughs> Namasani. That night, your hair was full of thread. I almost forgot your eyes and tea. Kiyokuro, Jadu. You sat by a cove with your little cup, salt clay, painted dark blue, like something I could get back to. We played a game. I packed in my suitcase, Airedale on an airplane to Zebra Zoo. Near the end, I packed a scintilla. You kept returning to 30 thimbles of tears. And then I went again for all the parts of U and V and W. Maybe letters to the last anyone could say after a thin Sunday, after a moon like that going down, like new, a green flash. And I flash back to you, green wet, with knotted strings and dew, your hair with salt on the strands, those lined hands tasting of tea. Uh, and his last poem is, uh, it's a shorter poem, and uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting to read another poet out loud because I've been you know, reading these to get ready to read them to you. And so I have Paul's words in my head and in my, my mouth and it's, it, you get to know him in a different way each time I read it uh, and there's such a clarity of his language and the surprises in each thing that he discovers in, in his journey. Uh, so some of you have danced at David's Folly in, in Brooksville and felt your heart just skip a little when you thought the sword's not going to make it. <laughs> uh, I think it's all good. I think it's all good so far. And uh, and this is a poem that that Paul wrote about that. And uh, you know, uh, obviously, none of us know when the end will be. And you can almost read every poem as a as a kind of epitaph too. I don't know, but something about this. Is, that has a feeling of his presence of, uh, of coming and going. And uh, if you want to have a little song in here just to start, the song that's referenced is Get Lucky. <laughs> Soul Benders Tonight at David's Folly. A shady moon pointed me down the road where I heard two guitars ripping out the tomatoes. I didn't know the song. Then I knew, Get Lucky. And through stalks and paddocks, through horse-kicked barn doors, past hay bale benches, the claps of the crowd, my wife dancing almost without moving. I saw myself older than I'd ever been, shaped to the sore of the horns. Well, I, I think it's safe to say amongst 
this group that is pretty important to say with the cliche is Hello. <laughs> I, I, um, the main poet, Megan Sterling, sorry, has been publishing work this year like a runaway train. You need to be quick to keep up with her. Her daily poetry collection, These Few Cities, came out in 2021, as did an earlier chapbook, How We Drift. She has released three collections of poetry in 2023, which puts me to shame. Her most recent release, You From a Bottle Field, won the Paul Nelson Poetry Prize. Congratulations, Megan. Her chapbook, Self-Portrait with Ghosts of the Diaspora, was released, released in April and Comfort, to the, uh, and Comfort the Mourners this past summer. Also in 2023, she co-edited an anthology, A Dangerous New World, Main Voices on a Climate Crisis. Megan Sterling is the current program director extraordinaire at Main Writers and Publishers Alliance as well as the Associate Poetry Editor for the main review, so I'm sure you will forgive me my t-shirt. Please welcome Megan Stroud. Hello there. I love the gravitas of reading feels like you can feel the spirit um, no matter what religion you are or what your faith is or lack of faith there's still something magical about reading poetry in a space like this how's my volume good. 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 okay good so I write a lot about motherhood but not just motherhood the way that motherhood has landed me in a lineage that I'm constantly trying to understand. And I write poetry as a way to understand what, what this life is, what is it I'm doing, what the people did before me. And I also write poetry to remember, remember the dead and remember my current life. And so I'm, um, I'm going to read a few poems that look towards the past before I read some poetry about the present. But often my poetry weaves those two together. So this is a poem from my collection, Comfort the Mourners, and it's called When My Family Left Ukraine. When my family left Ukraine, the children weren't born yet, and the shtetl was burning. My grandmother refused to speak its name. I found it years later in a library in Helsinki. Kalish had been Kalitsky, the shtetl that burned, in a list of thousands of shtetls, all ash. On the boat ride, my grandmother sold her shawl for bread. She destroyed the photographs once she arrived in Brooklyn, bought new furniture every 10 years. The only antique I want in my house is me. <laughs> so I'm originally from South Florida, 
and I married a Mainer. And my brother, my only brother, also moved to Maine. So my life was destined to be here. And like all of us, winter has its struggles, but also its profound magic. And so here's a poem that I wrote. And this poem took me a long time to get right. It took me a few years of writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until finally I arrived. So this poem is called Despite How Much We Say We Hate Winter. Despite how much we say we hate winter, like mother's milk, the snow has sent our bodies seek. We hunger for the black sky bright against the white, revealing the shape of things, our edges, ghosts, the meanness of ice, and winter's too slow return to light late at night. The sky threatens the sinking earth as we walk along the coast. My family in their dreams, lost in the waves. The shtetl they fled, and all in their graves. I don't know how to explain to their memory what I have done with my time here. How I have tried to love this place, to save this place fed too as I've been by love and struggle, by loss. And all of this beautiful snow, the joy and cruelty of snow, the way winter contains us in its endless fields, its massive hands, the way it brings us closer to our beginnings, dark and light and altar. Love a good whistle. I love whistles. My my dad always used to whistle to locate us in like a grocery store. Um, so whenever I hear a whistle, I remember that someone trying to find me. Um, so again, I'm always trying to connect the past with my current life. Right? What does it all mean? This life that we're living, how do we make it mean? And this is a poem, uh, this poem is really important to me. This, these poems that I'm reading right now are in the collection, View from a Borrowed Field. Um, but there's something I want to explain before I read this poem. So I, my beloved grandmother, um, she and I were best friends for my whole life until she died when I was 29. And when she was dying, we had a hospice nurse there. And at some point, my, my grandmother had been not speaking for days, not awake for days. And suddenly, she raised her arms and started to push the air away. And I thought, oh, she's, she's waking up, like she's, get, she's waking up. And, and the nurse said, no, 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 this is part of her dying. So I mention that because her, that motion comes to play in this poem a few times. This poem is called Full Circle. A poem came to me once, but it skirted the sheet covering my grandmother's legs. How I clasped her feet to warm them between my hands, 
but they didn't yield like they did on Saturdays when I used to rub her feet with lavender lotion while she beamed in gratitude. Now, it's 12 years since her death, since she pushed the air away as if to make room for her flight. Not that she believed in such things as flight or souls or heaven, but the way she looked at me as I rubbed her legs, I see again in my daughter's face when I've spent all night with her, holding her hand for hours, although my arm falls asleep and aches as if shot. She is so grateful in the morning. She holds my face in her hands with a tenderness sharp as cracks on the surface of an egg. This morning, I almost couldn't bear it, loving her that much and being that loved, having her look into my blurry face and see sunshine, snowfall, all the things that she thinks are magic, and how I ached knowing that change is coming for both of us, fast as a bullet. And then I remembered the poem I didn't write on my grandmother's deathbed. And I saw that it had returned, that it is always returning, in the way my grandmother's hands pushed at the air as though conducting music, in the way my hands tried to warm her feet, in the way my daughter now holds my face in her delicate hands, and I then hold her face in my clumsy ones how my daughter's face is everything I never thought I would have again. The love I felt long ago staying bright enough to light another and another and another. So, um, our daughter is small. Not as small as she was when I put together this book, but she's still a small little butterbean. And um, I'm so glad I wrote these poems when she was little because it brings me close to those memories of what it means to be giving your everything to this small creature and how much better it's made me and the way it's connected me to everyone else in an entirely different way, which I'm, I'm so grateful for. Um... So I, I do this thing where I weave seemingly disparate experiences together. That's something that I've always done, and I, I didn't realize how to make sense of it until I realized I was a poet. And this was a way to make sense of that weaving, right? So um, summer, the first summer of the pandemic, it's a very difficult time for everyone, and... Um, the week that George Floyd was murdered, there was this news story, a main news story, about a bald eagle that washed ashore in this lake in northern Maine. And next to it was a dead baby loon chick. And uh, people were saying, oh, the, the bald eagle has been shot because there was a, it was like a hole through the bald eagle's heart, and then when they started to investigate, they discovered that the bald eagle had been um, killed by the beak of a loon. And so you had this dead baby loon chick 
next to this dead bald eagle. And then the story becomes clear about what it is that happened. So I have a small child. George Floyd was just murdered. We're in lockdown. And then there's this new story. And I thought, okay, I've got to write this poem. And here it is. And Stuart actually read this poem on his show, Poems from Here. So this poem is, Moon stabs bald eagle through the heart the same week George Floyd is murdered. Every mother knows this fear. Dreams that have kept me up nights. A thick-necked stranger grabs at my infant daughter. The roar of rising waters resting her from my arms. And now, a policeman kneeling on her neck as she calls my name. She is three, and I still dream she is a newborn. My DNA dictating me to organize every part of my life to protect her. My body becoming a shield. It just happens. You look into the face of your child, petal soft and gaping like a fish, and you resolve that you would kill for her. The loon was no different. The chick she lay that she carried across waters, cradled in her wings, grasped to death by the eagle who thought that this was just another answer to hunger. But we mothers know the brutal acts possible. The fingers that stroke our infant's hair would stab out a man's eyes without joy, urged to murder by the simple fact of animal justice. And the grief that propelled the mother's beak to pierce the eagle's heart as fast and clean as a bullet is the grief that all mothers flinch to mention. And the man on the ground as breath failed him calling out mama as he was murdered by a policeman is the voice that haunts us. Every mother who heard that call cries out in answer, darling, we are coming. So when my daughter was a little tiny baby, five months old, we came here to Blue Hill for six weeks. And we rented a little studio apartment on like Turkey Creek Road or Turkey Hill Road, Turkey something road. Turkey Farm Road, thank you. And we just, every day we took a picnic and we hiked around this area with her on her chest. And um, it gave way to so many dreams of one day living here and something we still talk about. And so that dream is woven in my poems as well. And so this poem is called Fields and Fields. This is still my dream. I speak it into the night that crawls along the floors that shares my bed. There's no loneliness in it. The night dreams my dream with me. When I speak it to the walls, lilac by moon, they become possible. How they start. There are fields of lupins, and my daughter is running. There's no rabbit trap to catch her. There is no threat of neighborhood dogs or the cars driving too fast. We become accustomed to fearing. 
There is no roar of traffic at all, only wind rushing over the lupins and my daughter's breathing and her laughter. A distant bird calls. The lupins bend and sway beneath her as she runs for the joy of it. And there is a house just beyond the field that belongs to us and waits for her to dream inside. For her to touch the walls with her small hands, feel the small smooth bumps of the cool plaster, to be outside and reach her arms out and feel with her whole body the field, the sky, the call of the birds in her ears to open her mouth and say, home. Okay. Um, my little daughter. My little daughter. How I love my little daughter. I am um, getting pregnant was not easy, and I was an older mom. They call it like what do they call it? Like you're a geriatric. Geriatric is what I was as being. Um. But it took a lot. It took a lot for her to come into this world. It wasn't easy, and so um, I could find the poem. This is the year our daughter was born. The year our daughter was born, so much had to change. The body I had known, with its illness, its scars, our marriage rhythms, all dependent on my keeping the beds weeded and edges clean. Powering through days with the energy of a thousand flower girls, all those trodden blossoms. We had been walking a hidden garden that spring as she took root. The skin of our feet soft with mosses' names: Haircap, Heathstar, Tamarisk, Gooseneck, Glittering Wood. The light had arced its back and landed in our laps as we sat on the bank, watching the river tangle with thrown stones, coming to rest again in its fish-eye shape, framed by the daylight moon. How it would part and rumble around the rocks, then come back to tender rushing, its glass threads running toward the needle of the falls. How my body had been busy. Quietly healing all that year with its stitches and sutures, so done with harboring wounds, so ready for something beautiful to come of its wounds. Thank you.
is a whiz at reinventing herself. She's worked as an executive with Conica Corporation, as president of the Portland Press Herald and the Maine Sunday Tele Telegram, and as vice president of the University of Maine, suddenly. She served as president of Maine Media Workshop and College in Rockport before, and I quote, retiring in January 2020. But shortly after, she co-founded the Poets' Corner with Catherine Seiss, a popular site that hosts online readings and events. And in May of this year, she co-founded the very first Camden Poetry Festival. So look for that in the spring. It was a wonderful celebration of poetry, and one of our old poet friends was there, Richard Blankham. In, in 2020, Meg authored a unique limited edition book called Letters from the White Queen, reflecting on letters written by her mother, and just this fall, she released her new collection, Magma Intrusions, that was inspired by her fascination with volcanoes. The collection, in her own words, is about the geological forces that shape the earth and the stories that shape our lives. Presidential inaugural poet Richard Blanco wrote of Meg that she allows us a keener understanding of life, of the smoldering secrets of family that erupt, then cool, I'm sure his pun was intended, of love either flowing through us like lava or slowly carving through our hearts like a glacier, and of the lofty peace we all seek as the solid rock right underneath our very feet. Please give a warm welcome to Meg Weston. Outgrow it. <laughs> and I did. So a lot of my poems speak to that. And also, I, I'm looking, I moved to Maine in 1974. So next year it'll be 50 years since I moved to Maine. So this book, Magma Intrusions, um, a lot of the poems are about Maine, about volcanoes, about family stories. So the first poem I want to read is called Almost the Last Billboard in Maine, 1984. The Highway Beautification Act of 64, banning billboards on interstate highways, was the passionate wish of Lady Bird Johnson. And LBJ said to his aides, I love this woman, so you will see that we win. 
Maine's law passed in 78, banning billboards from all state roads. It took six years to enact. Almost the last billboard stood alone on Route 1, opposite the plant where I worked. Young, a vice president in a company that processed thousands of rolls of film for Lavertiers and Welby's and Rexall. Recently divorced, I'd begun to date. I called him the electrician, although his name was Bob. <laughs> One morning I drove to the plant across the highway Next to an ad for Merritt cigarettes appeared a new billboard, a hand-painted picture of a volcano, crude, a lumpy black mountain, and above it a clump of gray cloud, sides flowed with poster paint lava. Beside this, the words, imperspicuous, never, love Bob. <laughs> Everyone knew it was for me. <laughs> Factory workers giggled. My boss called me into his office. Who's Bob? <laughs> the radio station picked it up. The whole town was talking. Who knows what imperspicuous means? <laughs> me, I knew. Our imperspicuous romance had begun on Route 1 towards Wells, where we stopped at a used bookstore. I bought a tattered book of old words and read to him while he drove. Imperspicuous, vague, uncertain, unclear. He said it described me to a T. <laughs> but it might have been just how I felt about him. His painting was the last volcanic eruption ever seen in Maine. <laughs> I'm almost the last billboard for me. <laughs> um, the next poem I'm going to read uh, was written during the pandemic during the beginning of the pandemic. I'm going to find it someplace here. The only one that's sort of out of order in this book. <coughs> okay, it's a title tectonic. One, relating to the structure of the Earth's crust and the large-scale processes that take place within it. Two, a change or development very significant or considerable. One, I've been obsessed since I was 13 with a single image of the eruption of Circe off the coast of Iceland. A tongue of lava pushes back the waves an island appears from nowhere. It rises along a fault line that intersects the earth like a seam sewn by a seamstress with a shaky hand, jutting this way and that, bisecting the globe into plates that collide against one another, 
or rip open this ocean floor to spill blood and tear the earth apart beneath the sea. The plates move at the speed your fingernails grow, slowly, inexorably tearing Iceland in two, one side moving towards Europe, the other drifting over to North America. Two, I'm sheltered in for months as a pandemic spreads across the globe. The world, it seems, erupts in protest over centuries of subjugation. The flora and fauna spiral towards extinction. I look out from windows that I've spent the past month washing. My world appears bubble-wrapped in endless Amazon packaging stretched across the fenced-in yard. Each morning, rose-colored light dances with the shadows on my closet doors. Giant heads of peonies nod into bloom. A robin steals the worms from our first vegetable garden, newly planted. The evening news shouts from the large screen TV, this is what's happening, forces me to look until I shut it off and go to bed. <coughs> At night, the virus slips past my dream catcher and enters my dreams. You are going to die, the dream doctor tells me, then asks, how do you feel about that? I answer, I am okay with death, just not today. My cocoon of beauty holds still while the earth shifts, imperceptible. Momentous. Um, I'm going to switch to something from this chapbook that Marie mentioned was written based on letters that my mother wrote to me uh, when I went away to college in 1969. And she wrote to me almost every day, and she told me to save her letters. And fortunately, I did, because she died a couple of years after that, very shortly after. And I didn't discover the letters for another 10 years. And then I always wanted to do something with them, um, with her voice that comes through in that long-forgotten art of letter writing. So I, I came across, I started writing poems that reminded me of some of these things in her letters, and this became a chapbook with excerpts of her voice from her letters and poems that I'd written in response. And it's self-published, so really the only way you can get it out is on the poetscorner.org. So this is from her. I guess Daddy-O might have been right about you going so far away because I would like you to wrap your arms around me right now. He pulled out all the stops about your going, saying that I needed you too much to let you go so far away, because he knows how much I love you. But when someone says that, then I say, all the more reason to try to make it possible for her to go because mothers must be cut from umbilical cords 
and be born again and again and again. And she signed it, Love from the White Queen, and she signed every letter, either the White Queen or WQ. <laughs> if you remember, um, the White Queen was the one that was bundling and confused all the time <laughs> in, through the looking glass. But this poem is called Photo of the Beach at Patchogue. The family campfire sheds its sepia light on woven picnic baskets strewn at random and narrow pickets with spindly spikes to keep the dunes from washing out to sea. The gathered women, now grainy, not quite in focus, Yet clearly my mother and her clan have coffee boiling on the fire. An unused skillet from lunch or dinner lies forgotten in an empty basket. All is silenced by the ocean's waves. Wearing a cap-sleeved printed dress, hair pulled back by a headband, only my mother turns to face the camera. Smiling, she looks directly at me as if I'm the photographer here, the one behind the lens, and she knows it even then, long before I come into the picture. Across the fire, my grandmother sits knocking back something stronger than coffee. Her skirts hiked up mid-thigh, one arm is draped around a sister who stares demurely at the ground. They remain oblivious to the shutter's click. They don't see they will all outlive my mother. It will be after she marries, returns to the shore, teaches her children to swim in the waves, after she brings us here in the night to build a fire and fills our heads with stories of trolls under bridges and strong Swedish blood. After she's gone, I will find this long-forgotten photo, see the campfire sparks trail across the sky and taste the salt of the sea. So I just got back from Iceland, and I, I teach workshops only in geologically hot spots. <laughs> so Iceland and Hawaii are favorites. <laughs> and um, this is a poem uh, written about Iceland called Whooper Swans. The day filled with wild swans in the skies and in the ponds, a memory of driving, fall, mountains and fjords of Iceland, ice forming on mountain passes, a family of whooper swans climbed up on too thin ice, one by one, struggling yet graceful, moving across. Another memory, walking, spring, southern Iceland, 
the pond no more than a puddle. Strong winds, wings bristled at my intrusion, rushed from the brush to enter the water, swam in circles, each movement an arc of grace, thrusting his neck forward, gliding his full white body back and forth, his eyes on me. A movement, a female phalarope leaves her nest in the grass besides the pond. Could the swan be protecting her not yet hatched young? I envy this protection to save my nests of ideas unhatched that may never be born without the strength of powerful wings. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read just two more poems. And uh, But first, I, I might want to explain the name of this book, Magma Intrusions. Does anybody know what Magma Intrusion is? <laughs> Stu, you must. <laughs> I, you probably all know. You've all seen them if you've been on Maine's coastline, and the, the granite, it has these strange lines in them that are white or black, often. And those are magma intrusions. And they're where the liquid lava at the time when, when Maine, 500 million years ago, had active volcanoes, and the lava intruded between sedimentary or other kinds of rocks, obviously, granite here. And it was significant to me in that, you know, for someone obsessed with the volcanoes living in Maine <laughs> for 50 years, you really got to go back 500 million years <laughs> to find an active volcano. So I started looking for them in the rocks and in the places where you do see them on the coast of Maine and finding them in the uh, finding them in the geology. So, you know, I think instead of this other poem, I think I'm going to read Roadside Geology, which is a pantoon. One, after my first marriage, uh, and I have to say that lines one and four of the first stanza are taken from the book Roadside Geology of Maine by Caldwell. Geologists try to decipher ancient stones. Mysteries remain. Continents collided, broke apart, drifted, lifted into mountains. Sea fossils, sea creatures fossilized in mountain peaks, distant chaos of time. Maine is an intricate collage of fragments. Continents collided, broke apart, drifted, lifted into mountains. Fifty years ago, starry-eyed, we drifted up the road to Maine. Maine is an intricate collage of fragments. We winterized the cabin on the river 
hauled our water in by sled. Fifty years ago, starry-eyed, we drifted up the coast to Maine, meandering through the muddy scent sediments of youth. We winterized the cabin on the river, hauled our water in by sled. Wood stove bellowed smoke, frost obscured the window panes. Meandering through the muddled sentiments of youth, we broke apart, drifted and lifted on our different paths. Fragmented memories fossilized, the distant chaos of our lives. Geologists try to decipher ancient stones. Mysteries remain. I think I'll end here with a, another volcano poem. This one's from Hawaii. And how many of you have been to Hawaii? How about the Big Island? How about the red road on the big farm? Ah, a few of you. It's a pretty amazing road that just kind of wanders along the, the cliffside in a very active volcanic area. So this is called Highway 137, the red road. Lean with me into the curves, he instructed, before we began my first motorcycle ride. The glee of children from the 60s, now almost 60. On the red road from Kalapana to Kapoho, my arms wound tight around his waist. We swerved around each bend, my hair whipping against my face. Glimpses of ocean ravaging black lava cliffs. Mile marker 13 flash by. Blue sky, blue water, red road reflected. My blue eyes gleaming. At night he whispered, I am not your true love. But I didn't believe him. Enticing sense of sulfur flew in the bedroom window inhabiting the arms of my dreams. I flew back home to Maine before the white Lexus veered into a turn and cut in front of his Harley, catapulting the bike and body into that blue sky forever, changing the geography of my life. Years later, I watched the evening news as a wall of lava, two stories high, snaked across Highway 137, halting traffic, consuming cars, houses, and mile marker 13. Thank you. Well, you only have to look at the titles of the next poet's books to know that you're in for a surprise. <coughs> Chen's Chen's debut book was entitled When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a Lisp 
of further possibilities. <laughs> Who doesn't? It was long listed for the National Book Award and won the Tom Gunn Award, among other honors. And Chen's most recent book has an unusual title as well. It is Your Emergency Contact Has Experienced an Emergency. <laughs> and it was named the best book of 2022 by the Boston Globe, Electric Lit, NPR, and others. His work appears in many publications, including the New York Times and three editions of the best American poetry. He has received two Pushcart Prizes and three fellowships. From 2018 to 2022, he was poet in residence at Brandeis University, and he currently teaches for the low residency MFA program at New England College and, and Stone Coast. Let's see. I think that's it, so let's have a round of applause for Chen Chen. Oh my god, there are more of you than I thought. Sitting pretty far up in the front. This is lovely. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Marie, um, for the invitation. Um, and yeah, thanks to my fellow readers, fellow poets. It's um, such a delight to read with you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and set my timer. And um, I'm going to start with a new-ish poem that feels uh, fitting to read. How's my volume? A little louder? Okay. Um, this poem feels fitting uh, to read in a church. God, God's powers, Lord, universe. If you cannot at the moment give me much joy, I get it. I have asked and received many a great joy already. Just give me, if you can spare it, a small joy, say, the size of a ketchup packet. If that's too much to ask for, then how about a small kindness, a tiny kindness, the size of a kiss from a dust moat? No? Okay. Would it be possible for you to take away some things then? <laughs> for instance, the soreness on the right side of my neck. If you could remove maybe half a pinch of that soreness, I would leap up as though it were a great joy. I mean, it would absolutely be a great, great joy. Thank you in advance, O oh highest, O oh mightiest, O oh most. Still no? Well, what about this sense that everything has become very slippery? Everything is slipping right out of my fingers and faster every day. I'm not asking you to cure my fear, nor unslipify my fingers. Only if you could, if you have a quarter of a split nanosecond, it would be greatly appreciated. See, I don't need joy or kindness or ketchup. I beg you, if you are a being, a higher, some mysteries that can listen, can mercy, I just need to lose a little less quickly. Then, I think I kept changing my mind about what to read. Um, but I hope that this is kind of in conversation, maybe strange conversation, um, with what others have read. Um, but uh, I just 
winter recipes from the collective, and it's just called Poem. Day and night come hand in hand, like a boy and a girl, pausing only to, only to eat wild berries out of a dish painted with pictures of birds. They climb the high ice-covered mountain, then they fly away. But you and I don't do such things. We climb the same mountain. I say a prayer for the wind to lift us, but it does no good. You hide your head so as not to see the end. Downward and downward and downward and downward is where the wind is taking us. I try to comfort you, but words are not the answer. I sing to you as mother sang to me. Your eyes are closed. We passed the boy and girl we saw at the beginning. Now they are standing on a wooden bridge. I can see their house behind them. How fast you go, they call to us, but no, the wind is in our ears. That is what we hear. And then we are simply falling. And the world goes by. All the worlds, each more beautiful than the last. I touch your cheek to protect you. This next poem um, is from um, my book that came out last fall, Your Emergency Contact is Experienced an Emergency. Um, just like every time I say it, it feels like it's longer. Why <laughs> so many syllables? Um, I would love to have a book title that's like one word, eventually. Eventually. Um, so this next poem is part of a series uh, in this book where the titles are all like the school of something. And part of that came out of just being in grad school for a million years. Um, but I was also thinking about learning, how we come to learn things uh, both in and outside of school. Um, and so, you know, there's a poem called The School of Logic, another called The School of Joy, and this is The School of Australia. Your emergency contact has called to quit. Your backup plan has backed away. Your boyfriend has joined a boy band named All Your Former Boyfriends <laughs> and Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> In the ugly teapot slash uglier luggage section of your local Dillard's, you would like to scream. Meanwhile, your father has decided to pursue his original dream and move to Australia, the brochure version he fell for in college. In Australia, he will study beach studies, and his Western name, Tony, will finally catch on. Tony, the Australians will say, where have they been hiding you? And Tony will say, I never imagined I'd be doing way better than my son. And on his way home from the school of the beach, its shelves and endless glitter, Tony will toss out a dog-eared copy of the manual he received upon arriving in America, how to have deeply sorrowful exchanges with your son about your immigrant hardships, how to make him understand he must become a neurosurgeon, at least a dentist. The manual will go on to a second career titling academic papers. Australia will be renamed Tony's Son, Get Your Shit Together. <laughs> T-S-G-Y-S-T will call to say, but remember, you're already a glittery stretch of dream. 
your own emergency, Tony. <laughs> I just, I love that he picked like an Italian um, immigrant name. <laughs> Sounds nothing like his Chinese name. <clears throat> so the next two poems um, I'll read um, are dedicated to the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting of 2016. Um, and this one also makes reference to a song in a music video by the Korean-American um, singer Yeji. This is called Elegy While Listening to a Song I Can't Help But Start to Move To for Pulse. One, what breaks me is their giddy, their swaying moments before. Two, Yeji sings, this project is called depression. And I think about how I haven't been out dancing in a year and how I say, because I'm a homebody, when my body misses the way bodies become song and light. Three, they're singing along, their jokes, their soon worthy moves. Four, how does a body forget all danger and become song soon? Five, in the music video, Yeji critiques makeup tutorials by performing one. The makeup products are Ego, Embarrassing Moments, Capital D, Depression. Six, how does a queer body? Seven, I'm in my seventh grade bedroom again, quietly putting my hands on the warm hips of a tall column of air. I've sculpted the air into a boy, Jake B, who sits across in history. I feel finally inside my own face. I'm giddy, then afraid. Eight, they're clumsy but don't care. Their beauty, the beauty of the night lit up by a lyric, a kiss, some impossibly impeccable hair. Forgetting all danger because the lungs need to, the legs. Nine, in the music video, Yeji dances to the rhythm of her own satirical ritual, finding joy or something like it. 10. They're finding each other. 11, what breaks? 12, how sings a body? 13, one night I walk by a soccer field and see college boys playing, touching each other rough, bare chest meeting bright t-shirt shoulder, and I can't help but think sports are super gay. <laughs> think the word glistening must have been invented for just this site. There are moonlit collisions my instant replays and slowest cue the soft music motion. 14, the body's truest thought is play, moon. 15, how does my body? 16, in the song, another makeup product is the unexpected tomorrow. Yeji sings, put on the unexpected tomorrow. Yeji sings and I sway, and yet their laughter I keep hearing their laughter moments before. And this next one is called um, One Year Later, A Letter. And there's a note. In memory of Christopher Andrew Drew Lineman, 32, Murdered with his boyfriend, Juan Ramon Guerrero, 22, in the shooting at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, June 12, 2016. It was Latin night at Pulse, and many of the 49 victims, like Guerrero, were Latinx. 
Leinonen, one of the last to be identified, was Asian American. This poem addresses Leinonen as true because that was the name he chose for himself. Dear Drew, I search your name again, find a new picture of your mother holding up the bright shirt you died in, looking at the holes, the bullet holes, waiting for one more gleam of you to push through. Drew, I didn't know you, but keep reading, rereading about you. You who shepherded friends and dates, and maybe I'm not 100% straights, to their first gay club. You who danced Dance Dance Revolution, watched Star Trek, loved your DVD collection. You who goofed, giggled. You who shenaniganed. You who all caps shouted gay, like yes, whenever someone tried to lowercase snicker. Are you? You who worked as a counselor, who called your red pickup truck the flamer, who donned a floppy Santa hat for the gayest holiday picture with your boyfriend and mother. You who were dancing with your boyfriend Juan, but not. You who I keep reading about until I keep seeing my face, my brother's faces, and yours. You who gleamed. Drew, sometimes I dream into earlier that night to the place you shared with Juan. You're getting ready while he eats a snack in the kitchen. You're trying on a blue shirt, thinking maybe not. Then he comes in to tease you for taking so long. Juan, in his third year of college and just weeks away from his 23rd year. Juan, the quieter one. Juan, fan of staying at home, but also a fan of Latin music, friends, dancing with you. Juan, a big fan of peanut butter. Juan, who, as one friend puts it, was always trying to get everybody into peanut butter. Juan, his hand on your shoulder, your hand, his beardy cheek, then him saying, yes, this shirt, before the two of you step out. Drew, each time I dream it, I slow it down a little more. You try on five shirts, each with different shoes, and Juan sits down to eat a whole peanut butter sandwich. Then another touch, another touch of his cheek. But sometimes, Drew, there's another part of me, and not a small part that returns to your mother instead of you, the way she holds your shirt with the largest missing. Because I wonder, would my mother do that for me? My mother, who once said, if only I never had you. My mother, who still can't say your boyfriend. But knowing my mother, I can say she would hold it, even on the news, for everyone to see, because a not small part of her would rather miss me than listen to me. Listen to me say again, I love him. Drew, what did you say to the unlistening, to the heart that prefers a shyness? Shirt. Okay, I'll read some other new ones if I know where I put them. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, she said so doubly and quickly over the phone. Then quiet, like the rabbit by the mailbox this morning, scurrying away through Wyoming snow, as though they've just delivered too large a piece of news. But I could tell she meant it. I heard it. This was her, my mother, apologizing. But then she added, you know, I'm Chinese. 
as if I'm not also Chinese. As if there's only one, and it's her. And this was after I said, I'm not coming back for Christmas unless you apologize, really, this time. And this time I said, you can't keep saying you're Chinese. You can't. You can do better. Because it doesn't, it never did explain away the fights, all the nights screaming at me to be a normal boy. When I'm not, I'm lucky. I'm doing Friendsgiving with new friends, fellow artists at a kind of winter art monastery. I've got on my pink sweater, pink corduroy trousers with red, red hearts embroidered. And after these stylishly cloistered weeks away, I'll be kissing my boyfriend's entire face very well. I'm happy, very, because Jeff's made a superlative sandwich at his Friendsgiving, and he's promised to, of course, make it again when I'm home. And home is his hands, our bowls, so many gay fridge magnets. And home is every friend who's been telling me, tell her, tell your mother exactly what you need her to stop telling you. And home is how I no longer need her approval for, her proud of. I need her kind too. Kind as a post rabbit on holiday, delivering nothing but softness, softly. And home is the way I stayed calm over the phone and wept over how I do want to see her at Christmas, her astonishing plaid outfits, her platter of beef and glistening bell peppers, her bowl of steaming, singing green beans that always made up for the screaming until they didn't. Of course it's on FaceTime that Sam calls me a monster to my face repeatedly, then asks, has anyone ever called you a monster? All because I said that 3.30 p.m. is a bonkers time to FaceTime, and 4 p.m. is much more reasonable. And why shouldn't I talk about my elegant perm a bit every day for the rest of our lives? And it's July, and I've been utterly behind since last July. And I'm definitely still writing the wrong year, sometimes a month, but I always ask if the day of the week is right, though who the hell cares? I do. God, do I care. I mean, I don't give a shit if I'm deeply understood or genuinely likable, but I need to be lovable. I write to be lovable. I write, I rewrite, I say read my poems to be loved, and not my poems. Me, love me, not my words. Love this person with this face and this name and this chin and this need and this upside-down wishful wistfulness and this memory and that pet fish and these Tuesdays and these moods and these tootsies and these shirts and those little embroidered flowers and these bits of hair on my shirt shoulders and my mother cutting my hair and my mother who cut my hair till I was 15 and full of rage and both of us were and different reasons and same results and she was so lonely and I was so alone and my hair, the snips and strands on the concrete, what was it, the sitting area outside our apartment and it was late summer, late afternoon and later she would cut the watermelon too and all the juice on the counter and all the hurt she said and did and could have and didn't and wept and did she did say sorry, she is doing sorry. Can I be done hurting? Do you know how in one dream my hair was so long, only she could cut it. She said, let me, and I let her. Don't read one more poem. This one is called Zombie Kindnesses, and um, it's inspired by um, an artwork by Sandra Louise Scoglund, and I was asked um, 
with a bunch of other poets to respond to artwork in um, the Smith College um, Art Museum, their collection. <clears throat> Zombie kindnesses. If heterosexuality must continue, let there be cats, glowy green ones, why not? Like alien moss or undead neon, but definitely cat-shaped and capable of appearing anywhere, say, a living room in which my grandmother sighs again, asks again, why can't you find a nice girl, have some kids? Or a classroom, a grad school classroom, where in the middle of a break time conversation about who we're dating, a straight classmate puts his hand on my shoulder and earnestly, almost sweetly wonders, but with your boyfriend, how do you decide who does what during, you know? Let me summon the cats. Let two of them spook my grandmother just enough so that she's more concerned with finding an exorcist than finding me a wife. <laughs> Let three of them scratch and scratch my straight classmate's hand. Let them leap to my rescue. Let them henceforth be known as my guardian screeches, furred veracities, zombie kindnesses, risen from some unkillable queer soil. And right now, in the stale mouth of my dentist's waiting room, I may require all of them, every green cat, here, where not only is every magazine's cover story about a heterosexual divorce from five years ago, but also on one otherwise blemishless wall hangs a portrait that must be new, as I 110% would have remembered it, this framed painting of my dentist, and who else could she be? His wife, the two of them dressed in sweater vests with little embroidered badminton rackets while holding, what else could they be? Badminton rackets. And they're smiling, smiling, like they're the perverts who've just invented dentistry. <laughs> yes, I need all of you, all your splendidly obnoxious, scary verbatimness. Firstly, because couples' outfits are unacceptable, except on me and my boyfriend. <laughs> Secondly, because I like badminton, but who enjoys badminton that much? Thirdly, because, ew, I beseech you, I have the fanciest of feasts waiting for you. Rise up and finally become such uncompromising visual artists. Come paint over this beaming monstrosity. Paint instead the glory of my eye roll, my whole body side snort, my soul scowl, my profound frown. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know about you, but there is nothing like hearing a person read his own, a poet read his own words or do justice like Stu did. Um, so let's give these four wonderful poets a round of applause. <laughs>